You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to ACCA and this evening's program that builds on the considerations of sound and the voice in healing and transcendence uh, that is present in the 2019 ACCA International Exhibition, Harun Mirza, The Construction of an Act. My name is Miriam Kelly. I'm a curator here at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as the sovereign custodians of the land on which we meet this evening. I extend my respects to elders to ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us for this evening's conversation. I really won't say much, too much more before handing over to our esteemed panel, uh, other than to introduce initially tonight's uh, moderator, Steve Ellen, a psychiatrist, author, media commentator, uh, who some of you might know as Dr. Doolittle on Triple uh, R Radio. Uh, we also um, have our Steve is joined by our esteemed panel, Fionn Butler, sound artist, co-director of Future Tense, Stefan Scoff, an artist, music therapist, uh, and music therapist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center, and Annika Christensen, curator of Haroon Mertzer, the construction of an act, and an ACCA's senior curator. Thank you very much. Over to you, Steve. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for coming. Can you all hear me? Microphone working. I actually have a Triple R T-shirt underneath um, this shirt, but it's my best shirt, so I wanted to keep it done up because it's the only time you know, I look like I could be in an art gallery. Normally, I look like I'm at work, and so I dressed up tonight. So I appreciate the fact that you all love how gorgeous I look right now. Um, let's get the ball rolling by asking each of our panel to introduce themselves. Maybe just tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what attracted you to the psychology of sound. Fionn, do you want to... Yes. Get going. Um, okay, so my name's Fionn. I am a sound artist that plays under the name Papaphilia and also do sort of performance movement art as well. Um, I'm also a visual artist and work for Future Tense as a director, which is a sort of like creative sector analytic um, consultancy. And sometimes I teach, sometimes I run workshops. Um, I do a lot of weird things like that, but yeah, all over the place. And I also have just uh, doing some writing at the moment and just put something out with Disclaimer, which is run by Liquid Architecture, so doing write on sound culture and techno-poetics. I didn't understand any of that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Techno-poetics. So, yeah. Techno-poetics was a bit that got me. Yes. Um, and so, like, the poetics of technology and techne, which is, like, bringing form into life. And ignore my stupidity. I just can't. <laughs> put an audience in front of me and I can't help acting like a clown. Stefan. <laughs> What about, I know who you are, Stefan. Tell everyone else. Because right. we work together. Yes, we do. So, my name is Stefan. I am a music therapist. I started out, I'm a musician as well, producer. I think you can't separate the two. You need to be able to play an instrument to be a music therapist. Uh, I got my degree in Denmark, so I'm Danish. Um, been using music all my life, first to help kids with special needs, uh, and then later with something called social inclusion, with kids that have a hard time, like lower socioeconomic, not getting the love they really need, how to teach them social skills with music as a way to indirectly engage them in that. When I came to Australia seven years ago, uh, I got employed by Royal Melbourne Hospital, and now I'm the senior music therapist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. And as I usually explain it is, the hospital is set up to deal with the disease, and I, with music, go into the rooms and help patients through their cancer journeys deal with their existential fears, with the help of music. So we can talk, we can have verbal consultation, but often the music is actually the part that creates the space for emotions, for conversations, for reminiscence. And music is really powerful. I see it every day and I really appreciate it. So I've been doing that for seven years now. So. Fantastic, let's go over to Annika, who's part of this amazing place. Tell us. 
Yeah, so my name's Annika and I'm Senior Curator here at ACCA. Um, and I guess really here my role tonight is to kind of speak on behalf of the artist and the exhibition. Psychology of sound isn't something necessarily that I have the background that you guys do, and certainly I'm not someone who has a background necessarily in sound art particularly, but I do gravitate towards practices that have a sound component and often have a musical component as well. So um, I'm interested in people like Ragna Kiatonson or Korakrit Aran Anandchai or Angelica Masiti. I think of sound sometimes as like a rupture or a kind of something that allows you to kind of enter a work. It's sort of generous in that way. So it's the first thing that you might kind of orally encounter and then you're in it and that allows you space to kind of grapple with deeper concerns within the work. So I guess that's partly why I was drawn to Haroon's practice as well. Fantastic. Now, and um, we're hoping this is super casual, so we're going to have a conversation um, that covers various aspects of sound, the, um, the uh, actual, actual exhibition, and then a little bit about sound and healing and sound and politics and culture, and just see where it goes, essentially. And we're going to have time for audience participation, so save up your questions. If any of them are super burning, jump up and scream out that I can't wait till the question time, and uh, we'll do our best. And also, if you can't hear us at any stage, because we're, uh, you know, for whatever reason, just um, put your hand up. Super casual, super relaxed, see where the conversation goes and uh, take it from there. Um, what, and I, I probably the best place to start is talk, talk a little bit about the boundaries of what we mean when we talk about sound. Um, you know, what are we talking about? Uh, who wants to start the ball rolling? Maybe Annika, given that, um, you know, the exhibition sets the stage for what we're talking about tonight. Yeah, so I guess um, for Haroon, maybe there are no boundaries when we're thinking about sound. And part of what he does is really to kind of, I guess, make visible or make audible the invisible as well. So as well as sounds that you'll hear that are inherent to the artworks, which might be electrical signals, or they might be kind of um, sounds from found footage on YouTube, or they might be a soprano that he's working with, um, you also will hear the sound of electricity that's around us. So Haroon... Um, kind of actively defies the label sound artist. He thinks of himself as a visual artist and he's had a background as a DJ. So he does use kind of the methodology of a DJ in the way that he sort of samples and remixes things into new kind of forms. But he really refers to himself as a composer, I guess. And so that's composing with sound, with light, with architectural space, and then with the physical kind of presence of an audience member engaging within that space. And when we put this exhibition together, we thought to kind of extend that analogy of Haroon as composer and think about Akka itself as an instrument that was to be tuned in some way and to think about the exhibition as an overall score. So this exhibition does bring disparate works together, but they are all kind of bound together to be experienced as a total work. And one of the guiding principles that Haroon has used is this idea of 50 hertz of electricity as a guiding kind of binding principle to unite the works. And 50 hertz is the supposed frequency that comes off a, fire, uh, sorry, a power station um, to reach its source. So it's sort of latent around us all the time, but it itself also varies. So it's never always 50 hertz. It can be 48, 51, 52. It changes across the course of the day. And so for Haroon as well, he's interested in making this electricity that's latent around us Audible, and there's a work in the show as well that involves interference, and what that's doing is making that 50 hertz audible. So I guess what I'm trying to say is um, his understanding of sound is all-encompassing down to something that is latent around us, and he's interest interested in amplifying um, sounds in, in all their senses, really. And out of interest, show of hands, audience participation, who's actually seen the exhibition and don't feel embarrassed if you haven't because it's still open for another three weeks so you've got plenty of time how many people here have seen it already oh the majority 
fantastic. Do you want to add to that, um, Fiona? You yeah. know, given that it's your cup of tea also? Is, is it also, so yeah. Um, so, I guess I never like to talk about things like sound or art or anything like that out of context. I think talking about those things out of in abstraction just kind of doesn't work because there are so many contexts and ways to put value and judgment into that term. It does have different cultural contexts. So sound in a very Western context has a very particular lineage and canonical understanding, especially to do with how we think about the transition from noise or utterance into sound or something that is meaningfully shared and understood. Um, however, like you could... I think even Haroon refers to, has referred to sound in other cultural contexts as not being something that you can easily split from the visual. Like in other, he was saying in sort of Eastern contexts, especially in a Pakistani context, you don't split the way that you hear from the way that you see particularly. So it's not always something that's abstracted in that sense. So for me, sound is something that like is collectively something we understand as holding meaning potentially, as opposed to something that is noise but you know, noise also holds meaning for us too in this like contemporary context in a musical sense as well. So for me, I don't know, it's difficult to, under, to sort of put a label on it in that way. There are ways to sort of, I understand it through his work, which I'd prefer to definitely talk about because his understanding I think is, it's like this opening for contingency and it's an opening for things to come together like multiple different multiplicities to intersect with each other and for people to relate, find ways to relate to it. So it does have that very, like, it's a binding thing between people. It's a way of, like, expressing and exchanging, but it's also a way of receiving as well. And it can be received physically or just in a very, like, cerebral sense as well. I mean, in sound system culture, which is something I write about, it's about very much about the physical embodiment of sound as well, of it not just being something that you listen and digest in a very sort of, you know, intelligent sense, whatever. It's beyond that, like, there's a broader intelligence to it too. So it's something that's really complex in a way. And yes, like we're always surrounded by it. So it is hard to pin because it's like this thing that's never temporarily not there as well in a lot of ways. Even He says even in a vacuum you can hear your pulse, you know, as well. So mm. it's this ever-present vibration, I suppose. I guess, you know, I don't want to simplify this, but I would imagine that the vast majority of the world think of the art of sound as being music. Yes. And Clearly, we're talking about stuff that's beyond music, and we'll get to music as well, because obviously music's the dominant paradigm, I, I would assume, of the art of sound. But I guess the question I've got is, how do those of us who aren't familiar with the whole landscape, where do we start? Is that, a dumb, uh, is that too excessively dumb? I don't mind dumb, but I don't want excessively <coughs> dumb. Stefan, I can see you looking pensive. Put the microphone what? up to your mouth with can, that brilliant can, can, microphone. Can, he has brilliant microphone technique because he's a uh, musician. Can you, can you repeat the question, though? No. Oh. Um, so the question is, how do we engage in the, in the art of sound beyond music? Where do we start, those of us who aren't... Like, because I can see Annika and Fionn. This is, you know, what? you've put... Annika's put an... As a senior curator, you know, you've put an enormous amount of thought into it. Fionn, this is your whole, um, you know, this is what you do for a living. Mm. Stefan, you're more in the music. In, are you able to build a bridge? I think so. I'll, I'll give it a go. Because what I hear is a sound, all right, I'll break it down as, like, this is what I think. Sound are vibrations, basically. So, there's slower vibrations than light, if you want to bring it to the non-separation between what you see and what you hear. <laughs> but noise is just uncomfortable sound, really. 
the question I think is interesting is when does sound become music? Because in that space between sound and music, there has to be some kind of experience. That ha- there has to be some kind of experiencer that applies meaning to something. Now, it can be like when you go to this exhibition, you apply your own framework, your own consciousness, your own state of experiencing to the noises that you hear. If you're high on dope or if you are in an altered state of mind, you might hear a symphony in a dripping tab or something. Or you might not. You might just hear a dripping tab. You might just hear sound. You might just hear noise. I think the one interest... There's no end to this talk. I'm just talking right now. Sure. So what I find interesting is does the source of the sound need an intention? Like, does the artist need to have an intention with the sounds that are being produced for it to have a meaning, for it to become music? Or is it totally based on the experiencer? Can you stand next to a train line, listen to the train go, and that's like just, hell yeah, I can dance to that all night. Like, does it rock your core, or does it need intention on both sides? Like, music, is that the combination of intention? Is that where the sound source is thrown out with a level of intention and consistency? Otherwise, you can't dance to a train because it's over in 10 seconds. But there needs to be an intention of, and repetition for it to then, to some point, turn into music. So, anyone, is there, is there a point at which sound becomes music? Is there a point at which sound becomes art? Given that this is a, essentially an art exhibition. Is there, is there a point... Or, or, or is it just, is no. it so rubbery and dimensional and... It is. It's just there's so much multiplicity involved in it that it, yeah, it is. My music to me that I find is musical, I've had so many people say, what the fuck are you listening to? So I'm like... Do I need to explain what fuck means to anyone? Sorry, Sorry, go on. We're allowed to swear here, aren't we? I'm assuming. I think also just like there are things that people are bringing into music that they would never have thought of bringing in in a a previous time. So it's like it's just about acceptable sound that becomes musical. I mean, rhythm is just a repetition of a movement in a way, and that is something that is also, when we hear it, we feel it, we gel with it. So it is just about the sort of social institutions that you, of sound that you gel with, that you understand, that makes sense to you. So like a train going past, I, I hear that as like techno or something, you know? <laughs> I hear it as a beat and a pulse and a rhythm, but where I might hear, I don't know, some, a classical piece and I'm like, mm-hmm. Whatever. Like, I do might we, be able to take a bit out of that and use it as a sample, but whatever. Do you reckon we exclude sound from a lot of art? You know, and the reason I ask this is because, you know, when you go into a library, it, it's always meant to be quiet. And the reason for that is supposedly when there's background noise, we don't learn and concentrate as well. So libraries are traditionally quiet. And art galleries strike me as very similar. I, as, I, as anyone who knows me knows, you know, I t- tend to try not to ever go into an art gallery. But, you know, the times that I do, it's always so quiet. I'm being... I'm, Teasing, of course, when I say don't go in. I do if I'm forced. Um, Why is that? Why do we exclude sound normally? I don't know that we do it. We definitely don't at a place like Acker. I think, um, you know, I say I work in the visual arts and that word visual indicates maybe a preference to an eye, so experiencing something um, visually. But I think that sometimes these distinctions between music, sound, art... You know, they may be unnecessary. We tend to kind of be siloed sometimes, but actually um, I think those boundaries are very much open and blurred already. Um, I think 
yeah, this show, I just want to go back to your railway point before. Um, Haroon is really interested in the, what is the distinction between noise and what's music, what is art in a conventional sense, and what is, you know, cables that are kind of made to be aestheticised into a work of art. So he's interested in, like, intentionally challenging these distinctions. And there is a work in there which is um, basically the sound of electrical signal of an LED light being plugged directly into a speaker, and it's affixed to a chandelier and we have had several people dancing under it. So it's not necessarily music in a conventional sense, but it does do something physical within you, and people have responded um, in a physical way. Do you reckon everyone responds to sound the same way, or they all have different paradigms? And the reason I say that is, you know, so I play drums. I do everything during the day to a beat. Like, even when I'm doing the dishes, I like to have... Just, and so that, so I'm way more... And if I listen to a song, it's all about the percussion for me. Um, do we all think of it differently, or is it, yes. or are there some elements that are similar, to, uh, un, that are universal? What's the... Anyone? What has your, been your experience from having to... doing it in a therapy environment? And... Well, <clears throat> I, I think I can hear two... I can hear a theme that's kind of... I, I hear two directions, because what I'm working with, I feel like is coming from a different direction. So I think music has evolved with us as human beings, and it had a purpose. It has a purpose of communication. It has a purpose of, of combining us. It has a purpose of uh, creating a we uh, in hard times and easy times spiritually. Like, I can, like usually, like, I'd, I'd, music, we would have music from the dawn of mankind. So when, when men and women would go out and hunt mammoths, they would have to pump their hearts up so that they had the courage to face the mammoth with a spear. And the heart is a beat, right? <laughs> that's beat. right. Yeah, it that's has right. a pulse and a rhythm. Yeah, that's a beat as well. Yeah, so there's that evolution, and then there's a, there's a human. The baby is born, and then there's a communication going on, and there's, like, we're, we're embedded in music, but it serves a purpose through that evolution, and that's to combine us. In my job, it works in the way that if I play for someone who goes through their cancer journey, like I did today, Someone who's hyper-anxious, who doesn't know how to deal with that anxiety. When you break your arm, well, you put some caster on it, and then in a couple of weeks, you'll take it off and it's healed. If someone slides on the inside, what do you grab? Nothing. Well, you can talk about it, but to some extent, you kind of run out of words to describe what's going on. And at some point, the words don't allow you to really fully express that. So... When I play a song like I did today for some patient in his bed, lying there, highly anxious, one song will activate a slower breathing. Like, I play a song in a certain tempo, and as I pull that tempo down, his body responds to it. He's allowed to relax. His mind is pulled somewhere else. And after four songs, he's sleeping in his bed. Medication can do some of that, but it also has side effects and it dulls the mind. Music can really step into that sphere. I see music allow people that are not comfortable talking about emotions, at least along with their families, really break out in heavy tears when they hear 10 seconds of a song that means something to them. Can I ask what you... Just on that point, yeah? before we move off it, do you think that somehow... I hate the term hardwired, but you know what I mean, stuck in our brains that certain sounds have certain meanings. I know there's studies that say in different cultures... Um, uh, you play music to different cultures or sounds to different cultures and they'll all agree on which are happy sounds and which are sad, sad mm. sounds. And the most obvious is major chords versus minor chords. Mm. Do you think that's hardwired or is it trained or is it just years of 
what is it that, why is it that we rec recognise some sounds as soothing, some as happy, some as sad, you know, the baby crying versus the, um, you know, a dog growling? Why is it that we experience, are we trained that or do you believe it's hardwired? What's your gut feeling? I don't think there's a right and wrong answer to that, but I th personally I think that, um, that music is basically an emulation of the emotional language that we communicate with when we are children. So for the two first years of a child's life, they're talking through emotional, and I go through musical parameters, that means compression, pitch, and all that stuff, Whee! whatever. So if you take, um, uh, what's it called, the mel melody, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Some I've I've had I went to a lecture with someone who actually um, showed the the trajectory of a baby crying and then the notes on that. They're like, wah, wah, wah. and you kind of go, oh yeah, it's emulating something that's biological. That's very it's a very gross example, but I think to some extent I have a desire to feed you right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to chip in there and talk about. You know, you said, has, does everyone res like respond to sound in the same way? And I am a new mother, and one thing I learned is that women hear higher frequencies than men because we are more more like needing to respond to a baby's cries. So just putting that in there. That's just a random fact. But yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I the rare times that I've worked in emergency departments with that look after kids as well, I couldn't stand it could not stand the sound of, that background sound of babies crying the whole time. It just drove me nuts. I could not tolerate it. I don't know, there's a pediatrician in the front row, I don't know how they put up with that. What about, um, just because I want to just move away from, because we're going to come, we'll come back to a little bit of sound as healing too, but what I'm still interested, I don't think we've quite explored the cultural and political frameworks that you can yeah. view sound through. Yeah. How, you know, if using that lens... What do you, what do you... Yeah, so yeah, give me, with this, give me I was, I've been trying to think of um, some different frameworks to use in order to think about this work because there are many, and when I think about it, it talks about, like, the intersections between technology and knowledge and culture and nature and all these sort of things that are put into these relationships with each other. And he's not putting them in these sort of, like, yes, no, good, bad, binary sort of relationships, but he's op he is creating this, you know, really interesting opening by allowing these pieces of sound installations to sort of allow for contingency, allow for chance, and allow for all these different sounds to meet with each other. Um, but the thing that I wanted to sort of just put out there was that I did read some reviews about this show in order to try and see what other people were thinking in terms of the frameworks they were using to access it. And I did, I did read a very, um, like, Western, <laughs> Western canonical um, interpretation by Philip Brophy, about this exhibition that I wanted to read. I wanted to read a part of his, um, what he said, just to unpack uh, ways of looking at this that I think are quite didactic and kind of miss the point because we have this idea that like sound, you know, there is a sound art canon that's very like a 20th century development. There's all this like, it's tied in with technology. It's tied in with like very particular disciplinary frameworks. So sound as art, music as a particular format too. There being a very particular developmental history that is very Western. And he asked, one of his big qualms with this was that it was not a good exhibition and it said it meant nothing. There was nothing to gain from anything in here. And he says, there is not a single facet of this work that reveals anything about sonification, acoustic ecology, sonic objects, orality, sensory spatialization, technological mediation, 
spatiotemporal distortion, modulated embodiment, visualized physics, electrical semiotics, propositional energies. If any of you actually know how to unpack any of those terms or see them as actual conceptual frameworks for sound, I'd like to hear from you. Because as someone who has worked in the field for a long time, I was just like, you just put two words together in a and then made them a concept in your thing. But the best part was when he goes on, I could write a long list of topics to which the work has no ev evocative or elucidatory connection. And it boggles my mind because what I see in here is a very amazing like intersection between one, nature and culture, because these two words are always put into like a framework where they're in competition with each other. Or that one is stems from the other and that one doesn't sit with the other. Now in this piece that's just in that little room in there, we have like an ant farm that is also in correspondence with a, looks like a fountain going into a bin and- Showerhead. Yeah, shower yeah, undergoing, and the sound is also being projected elsewhere so that the sound intersects. And one of the things that he was trying to point by visualizing all those things together from what I've read is that a lot of the sort of the developments in quantum physics and um, other sort of like systematic frameworks come from people recognizing in nature that there are the similar systems that can that are, you can analogize in order to pull in to scientific frameworks to understand them better. So the connection between nature and culture and what we see is just not actually there. We are embedded in an ecology when we make sound, when we make art. It comes from not just humans in abstraction, working with even humans individuated. It comes from a whole world. So yeah, when we hear a sound outside, there's no way that we just completely block it out. There's no way that it has no relevance. At some point, it could be something that resonates in our mind later on because memory is a beautiful thing and it also is attached to sound and smell and all other sensory elements. But like, he's not just looking at sound as an or like, audio sort of thing. He's looking at it in intersections with visual and with how people relate together, not just one person, but multiple people in a space who might not know each other. Like you can't use the synthesizer in that room without there being more than one person. So what happens when you trigger an electrical single signal, not just through like, like objectified elements, but also through people? Like, what's the difference between the power of so between social social relations and the power that is like a current, as well? Like, what an interesting question that you could possibly answer, or like possibly think through while looking at it. So, to me, he like asks questions about. There's a lot of analogies going on here. It's yeah. There's many many analogies going on, and one of them for me was power. It's like power as a current, but power as a force and power as a force between people versus power as a force of like this, the rate and strength of a current that makes a sound. It's, uh, you know, the thing that strikes me when you talk about that is the range with which you can um, interpret and understand sound. You know, at the basic, most basic level, I like that sound, through to the most complex level where you're viewing it through this whole cultural, political um, concept, you know, with all these... You know, Shit. Well, no, because it's your, it's your life. And it reminds me, when you're talking about, you know, it reminds me of that, it's a hackneyed phrase that just came to mind and I hope it's appropriate. But, you know, and I, and I don't, in fact, I don't think anyone quite knows who said it. The old, that saying that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And it's, you know, it strikes me that um, 
sound as, a, as an art form is such a, you know, can be interpreted just so broadly. So someone who's an expert writing um, some sort of review can say it's all a load of crap versus someone else can listen and see and experience exactly the same thing. And I assume it's the same for music. Oh. Put the microphone up if you can talk. Take, take, take opera as a dividing range. Like, like you Where have people that will devote their lives to traveling around the world and hear the ring by Wagner performed in all kinds of things. You'll have people, and there will be people that go, what the hell is that? that? I wouldn't suffer that for anyone. Is it the same for all? You know, is this something that's unique to sound, or is it the same with visual arts? Maybe Anika might... Because I'm interested in what people's interpret, you know, what sort of feedback you've got from the exhibition too, as people have walked out, you know, have, has there been that full range? There has been a full range. I mean, I think Fionn's illustrated one particular point of view, but there's been many, many counters to that. Um, and I would say that one, one thing um, is this collective experience that you picked up on Fionn. Like, it, it isn't, you know, the exhibition is not attempting to teach you something about sound art. Uh, Haroon is kind of attempting to create spaces for coming together and experiencing something together. And maybe you walk out of that experience and you weren't that into it, and maybe I had a transcendent experience, but we came together for that, and that created almost a third experience. And there's something that um, the late writer John Berger had written, which I've quoted in my catalogue essay, which is talking about song, and it's quite a beautiful kind of summation of song, and he talks about how a song, when it's being performed, takes over the body of the performer. So it might take over the body of the singer, it might take over the body of the cellist, and then it takes over the bodies of the people that have come together to experience it. And so I think that's what is quite interesting to me, particularly about this show, but, you know, around art as well, isn't, you know, when you're experiencing a visual artwork that's maybe a painting, you can do that in a really singular way. But this exhibition really was about trying to create spaces for people to come together and feel something, you know, in a physical way as well as a visual or an oral way. And I wouldn't say it was... He's not going for transcendence in a lot of ways, too. It's really kind of just, like, banal in a lot of ways, which is actually a beautiful thing because a lot of things that are effective are banal as well. But, like, he's not trying to in any way reach for that because transcendent sort of experience is very much tied up, again, with the Western canon of aesthetics. And it is it, can, it should be problematised because, like, why should we have to get to that sort of excessive sort of place when we're engaging with something in order to learn or, I mean, there is an ecstasy in learning and there is, there is a beauty in that too, but it doesn't have to just be the Kantian experience of sublime or something like that. It can actually just be like something slightly moved in you or you recognise something else and like that's actually enough. Yeah, and just shifting your perception and ultimately that is what art in all its forms is kind of attempting to do. Just, just as an aside, how often do you have um, an exhibition where the um, currencies sound like this? Uh, this is, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think there are group shows often, or I mean, there are various shows that have sound in many forms. I mean, sound doesn't always need to take the form of this particular show. It's inherent to moving image work or film. It can be performance or spoken word, you know, all sorts of ways. I think this is quite rare for ACCA to do something that is, you know, predominantly sound. It's, a, it's an acoustically really challenging space. We've noted that before and talks here in the foyer, sound bounces off the walls endlessly, but Haroon really wanted to use that, you know, as something to play with as well. So he noted quite early when he came for a site visit that Acker's architecture had the distinct qualities of a reverberation chamber, yeah. which is, you know, a space that has no parallel surfaces and very hard walls, so sound bounces around in endless kind of diffuse ways. Um, and that was something that he really wanted to play with. But it is... Other, at other times and with other shows, a challenge. So, 
Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. We do a mix of things. Four shows yeah, a year, no, they just, change wildly. I, I think it's just interesting. Well, you know, because I'm, you know, of the four people sitting up here, by a factor of 10, I'm the least artistically inclined. So, you know, I'm just fascinated about how you got into this and where it goes. And, and in a second, I just want to do an, a sort of a temperature check on the audience too, but, and, and, but I'll forewarn, you know, I think we should, I, I want to ask the same question. You know, there's a range of ways that obviously um, culture and politics can interpret sound. And I want to ask Stefan how that, whether you think of sound in quite a linear way when you're using it for healing or whether you think of this broad stuff too. But I want to do an audience check because we've got, we're going to have time for questions. If there's burning questions, why don't we take a few questions now? The only catch is this is being recorded. So when I point to you and I'm staring at you right now, there's a microphone coming running up. So let's just take a couple of questions, see if there's anything burning and then we'll move on to, to a little bit about the healing nature of sound, if that's okay with everyone. Okay, you've got the microphone. Hello. Um, Perfect. Really Do you want to just say your name first? Oh, my name's Gabriel. G'day. Um, I find it really interesting that you said that there wasn't a transcendent aspect to the experience, and that was mentioned by a few people I came with after the performance, which is intriguing because the whole thing had sound throughout, and there was, there was live performance and there was all of that stuff, but a few people said, I just didn't get moved. Now, how is it possible that we can have a very complicated, really interesting, multifaceted, multi-sensory experience and feel a sense of banality at the end of it versus some of the work that, Stefan, that you're doing where you're trying to use sound to provide emotional movement? Where's, what's the difference? Fionn first. Yeah. Oh, there's a few ways to attack this, I think. Um, I think that... I mean, there is a bit of a sort of trope in contemporary sound art, especially because you might have seen some of the performances that, like, it is more about process or more about, like, um, the process of uh, collaboration and, and seeing what comes out ra and the praxis rather than trying to develop something that is going to be moving in a particular way in a universal sense or something that you can guarantee is going to move people particularly. Um, I mean, one can do that, but I think that maybe that's not his aim because there's, I mean, from the way I see it, it's like there's the sound, there's the, you know, the installations and there's all that together, but they're more of a thought experiment than they are something that reaches for that. So that's what I mean is just like there are sort of like things that you can put together that are thought experiments or something that is an opening for you to possibly reach a place of like having that sense of movement. However, if that doesn't happen, does that mean it is a success or a failure or it is just something that is there to be deliberated in another way? Um, I think I became quite moved when I started thinking about the work more than when I was actually seeing it myself as well. And that's a funny thing. It just like, it can take quite a bit to find the space to, of understanding and a resonance with the thing that's there. Um, so maybe it is just about that, like what proximity to like you having a resonance with the thing that's, that is there. I'm like, I can get pretty moved just by like a really weird like combination of sounds sometimes as opposed to like, yeah, actually hearing something that is supposed to be moving as well that is like put in that way. It depends kind of on the, your own institutions and understandings you bring to something, I feel. Or it can just be about surprise as well and encountering something that is new. How much is the context? Like the fact that you come it's along here everything. with the view, you know, um, versus if you just stumbled across it by chance. How much of it is, you know, so I guess I'm asking, 
you know, taking your question and saying, how much of that's about expectations? So, you know, someone's yeah. come along here expecting something and they're, they've got a different experience based on their expectations. That's a thing, hey, and that's, that's a big thing. And I would reckon that's the same for healing, Stefan. What's the expectations versus, like, what's the difference between if you wander into a patient's room and they've got some music going on in the background versus you go in and you maybe even play the exact same song, but there's a different expectation because a music therapist has walked into the room. How much of it is about expectation? Wow. I can use your example first. Like, uh, with music therapy, if there's a song playing and I can play that song, what you do not get, like, the, the, play, the playback is static. They will play the way it plays. But if I step into the room and I'm to play for you in a room, I'll respond to the room. I'll play to the need, because my focus as a music therapist is the need of the patient. If they want to relax, then I'll pull the song in that direction. I'll slow down the tempo. I'll soften the way I pick my strings. I'll soften the consonants in the way I sing. And so I'll, so I'll dull it down so that eventually they'll fall asleep. So their expectations is, is more on the weirdness of me being there. Like, like I am the music therapist, and I'm like, <laughs> this is a hospital. And I'm like, yes, let's get over this. What kind of music they like? And they go, whatever. So that, that but the, there's another thing, there's another, um, oh, I had a point, because it was a good question. Um, the framework and, 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 and the, 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 the experience of something like that, like I think with music where it follows certain conventions, it doesn't matter where it comes from in the world. Framework is handed to you. So you have, like, and maybe it's even imitating because it's developed with us. Like it's not something that just pff, happened. Like we, we, we didn't live with, without music for 200 million years and then in the 60s music happened and we were like, oh, what's this? Oh, oh, oh. Like we, we've developed with it so it emulates something. Like we, we're, we're it. Like it, we have a word for it in music therapy called entrainment. You cannot not respond to music, especially if it is in a certain kind of framework. And you can stretch that framework quite a lot. Like, and if you stretch it a lot, a lot, a lot, it turns into sound. And sound is less defined. It's kind of just happening, as I see it. And then with, with exhibitions like this, you have to apply the meaning to it. You have to apply the framework to it because it's not handed to you. So you go to these, you can go, okay, right. That was like a car passing. That was like a shower. But if you try to read something into the connection of everything, if you get if you exercise your intelligence into it and or just your emotional experiences, like whatever it is, disappointment or, and allow it to happen and then all of a sudden you get something meaningful out of it, then it's an exercise in you just making sense of it and creating a framework that isn't handed to you. That's how I see it. You know, it just reminds me, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but when Stefan first came to work at um, Peter Mac, he was in a meeting of all the sort of psychosocial teams, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, music therapists, and uh, he was asked to introduce himself to the team. And uh, you introduced yourself by singing a song with your guitar. And I was sitting opposite you. And it was like probably four of the most intensely uncomfortable minutes of my life because, you know, and, you know, it's, and the reason I raised that, it, again, it's the context. And, 
And, uh, you know, because I'm not really, you know, I'm not a person who's super comfortable with that sort of stuff. I'm a psychiatrist, from shit at it. And, uh, you know, the fact that you were staring at, because I was sitting right opposite you, so you often, you were looking across me, you looked around a bit, but you kept resting your gaze on me and you're playing this song. And, it, you know, and when you talk about how it's so different for the patient, you know, just a song going on versus that, and, you know, it just changes everything. It, you just reminded me so much of, you know, I just felt so uncomfortable. I don't know why. I just felt uncomfortable because I felt, I don't know, there was some person element to it that was greater than I was prepared for at the time. I don't know where. Anyway, um, this random comment. Um, more questions um, are available if people want to ask them. But I just want to touch on why does music heal then? Because we've talked about the political, we've talked about the social um, is an art form. Why does music heal? And this is for um, anyone. Obviously, it's your bread and butter, Stefan. Um, so you might want to... Um, I think you might follow up with I think it's very interesting because... I think it steps into your cultural expertise, so I'll, I'll just start with a thought, because that aspect is not very accepted in our, like the Western culture. Like, if I start to talk about frequencies, and if I step into a room, introduce music therapy, and go, oh, I think frequency uh, 150 hertz would be really good for you, people will think I'm nuts. Like, they, would, they would apply a stereotype music therapy. That's, when I go, I'm a music therapist, people think that I'll go kumbaya, and that I'll wear purple clothes, and they have these stereotypes, and they, they don't think that they'll get anything out of it. Now, if you break it down, like I sing songs and that dissolves their, their, their su suspicion in a way. I think other cultures are way better at accepting. Like, have you ever sat next to a didgeridoo? The, just the vibrations. I don't know if I'm hearing it or if I'm feeling it, but I know when it stops, I feel cold and I feel alone. I'm like, can, can you play it, play it again? Or I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm taking on a trip that is going beyond my ears in a way. And I do believe that there's an aspect to music that is less acknowledged in our culture um, as a science thing um, that has a healing aspect. Like uh, frequencies have, I do believe that frequencies have an effect uh, that is healing on their own. And this is kind of, do you have how, anything how to How broadly are you using the concept of healing? I agree 100% from a psychiatric, from a mental health perspective. Yeah. People use music all the time as a form of self-relaxation, um, as an, uh, an antidote to anxiety, as an antidote to depression. Mm. Um, they use it in all sorts of ways. They use it to motivate themselves. And it's just... But that's all cycle. And it's so common. But what do you... you know, do you think... Um, you know, do, you're amongst friends. Push it out. Yeah. You know, can it heal, can it heal a wound? Can, uh, yeah. Yep. Um, I guess maybe what the question might be, like, yeah, I guess in, there's a physical embodiment which maybe we don't actually have a lot of evidence around, but the way that the pleasure in the mind could actually have an effect on the way that the body, the body's well-being and the nervous system itself. I mean, maybe that's something. Yeah, and the the, like, there are the dawning theories. Like, you, you can, there's a study going on in Copenhagen right now where they've worked out that if you, nerves communicate with frequencies. So if you give patients that have chronic pain a certain frequency through music, like put some music on top so it's not like just blah, but then it actually numbs the pain. It, somehow it, it nullifies the pain in a way. So that's just the frequency. And the good thing about that is it has very little side effects as far as we know. And, and that's just one example of a physical approach because I think the psycho aspect of sound is very easy to explain in a way. Uh, or is it? I don't know. 
The what aspect of sound? Like, like the, all the moody stuff. Like uh, we'll play a song and your mood is shifted and all that. Like that we use it for all of you guys. You listen to music. I'm sure not one of you has been exposed. Like, I, I, is there one of you that hasn't listened to music voluntarily or involuntarily for the last week? <laughs> no. Like it's everywhere. And it changes moods. It makes you stay in colds for longer. It makes you... Enjoy a movie, it makes you scary. It makes it scary even though they just pulled the curtain. It's like, but then, and all of a sudden you're scared because the music emphasizes that. That's the psycho aspect, but the physical, the physical healing, I think, is just as prevalent, but we can't prove it because it's like... Yeah, and I guess there's one thing that um, Tarun does cover is sort of like the quantum level of yeah. sound as well, which you also flagged earlier when you were talking about light and sound waveforms, yeah, yeah. which are, you know, I guess they share a similarity. I'm not quite sure how to say if they are separable. Yeah. But at the quantum level, it is very much now a proven thing that vibration is something that is an element of like, particles at that level. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to actually separate something like the vibrational property of our makeup of this place and it also being something that we are made up of because we are part of that ecology. We are not separable from it. So we are embedded in it, that being part of how we react and absorb sound, I suppose, in some way. Do you think that this discourse, this talking about this, is... Why isn't it natural to talk about this? Like, why is it, why is it, why do I feel like, I don't know if it's just me. Maybe it's just, like, I grew up like this and I'm like, man, I feel. But it's like, it's not as accepted to talk about, like, you can talk about medical treatments for health and stuff. But as soon as you go, well, we're, we're vibrational beings that respond to frequencies. Like, if you did that in a, in a doctor's handover meeting in the morning half, I like just, just go and say in bed 40, they... Elsa there, she's a vibrational being that responds really well to frequencies 350 and mm. I think we should, like, why, but I, yeah. I actually, I'm not mocking it. I'm actually no, like, they, why they, is it that we can't? I don't know. I mean, I think there is a lot of pseudoscientific stuff out there to do with sound. I mean, I did once work under a CEO who was a sound awareness healer and, oh my God, he used to meditate during, and anyway, um, instead of actually resolve issues. But... Um, <laughs> So there is a lot of pseudoscientific stuff out there. However, I think that has, yeah, probably tainted the study. But I think that in at least what I'm seeing in the, at the quantum level in the sort of scientific research is that a lot of those very shonky theories and ideas that people have been like, well, you can't prove it, or it just sounds like a conspiracy. Now that sort of stuff is being more solidified in some way, and it's just about how you interpret it and what you think the breadth of that meaning can be for, well, humans or how it can have an ontological reading. But I think there's, I don't think that's unreasonable because it comes again back to this place of expectations. When you go to a hospital, there's a certain set of expectations that you're getting essentially evidence-based um, scientific approaches to healthcare, which of course are incredibly limited, but that's what the paradigm is. Mm. If you go to, um, you know, some... Sound I'm healing so, workshop. I'm going to be so cliched. But if you go to Byron Bay, you know, <laughs> you might expect someone to have a percussion-based healing workshop and you'll go there accepting and it's reasonable. So I don't have a problem that they raise their eyebrows, especially, you know, with your point that um, there's a lot of... You know, every... Um, Every paradigm has suspicions of other paradigms. Mm. And, you know, every paradigm naturally sets themselves up as being in competition. Not on purpose, but there's a degree. And so they naturally denigrate other paradigms, sometimes without 
good justification. Sorry, Stefan. No, 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 no. I just want to uh, counter a question there because then what I'm thinking is, right, I, I know we're a cancer hospital, so that might not apply, but one example that I can think of is like, all right, take neurology. You have a lot of money, a lot of focus, a lot of scans, a lot of investigation going on, yet they can't explain how synapses and the, the, the exchange creates awareness and, and identity and thought processes. So there are huge gaps in, the, in, the, in, in even that paradigm. Like they, they, there is a whole field called neurology, but they don't know the core thing about the brain, but they, they're starting to kind of patch a picture together. And they're allowed to be kind of fumbling in the dark in a way. Like, we, we could go like, well, we want to fumble in the dark too. Bring in the singing bowls and the didgeridoos and the stuff and put them on the wards. So but I, what, what, what's the difference in a way? Like, uh, can I just bring yeah, you back to the exhibition? Uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a fumble in the dark, actually. And I think, um, you know, the reason for tonight's topic is because at the core of Haroon's practice is a questioning of ideas of kind of truth and belief and the ways that we see the world through various frameworks, and they might be politics or religion or technology or science or and Western... He brings in spirituality, which is a big one that is always yeah. like, yeah, very much. I mean, there are singing bowls in the first work that you see. But, you know, so he's questioning Western medicine as well as a particular framework or belief system and looking at other forms of belief. And Haroon's not purporting to have any answers. He's not saying that one thing is better than the other, but he's really open to a conversation where you can talk about a hospital and talk about musical therapy in the same breath. And I guess this has come from an interest he's had historically with um, ayahuasca ceremonies and with Ikaro um, as a healing song used in the Shipibo Konobo people's culture in, and Amazonian shamanism. Um, and also in a central new work in the exhibition, um, we spoke about it briefly before, but he's referencing a uh, YouTube video with Michael Pollan, who's a US journalist, and he's describing an experience that he's had on psychedelics and how that has, uh, how the use of psychedelics in correspondence with the soundtrack has kind of made him feel like at one with a cello. So he's listening to this work, he's listening to Yo-Yo Ma perform this Bach piece and he's in it, he's in the song and for the first time he's able to kind of reconcile his own death and the death of other people he knows. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is an aside, but I'm kind of... No, not really at all, because I'm like, it's something in that in the sense that, like, you're bringing together all these possible worlds without, like, worrying about what they mean yet or putting a value or a judgment on them. And this is something that does actually, I think, happen in the, let's just say, the, the frameworks of science where there are things they're afraid to possibly say or commit to or, like, improvise and look through because there is so much stigma around particular things as being like, oh, that's too much, you know, too, that's a superstition or that's something else. And there's something that is it, still very much tainted in the scientific field. Um, and you know, it brings me back to Philip Brophy's statements about what art should be and what sound art should be as well. There are dynamics that people are quite didactic about. And here it, it encourages you to take a leap and to try and think through multiple different knowledges, knowledge systems or epistemes in order to find something, like looking at ant systems in order to make, to understand how something in cybermetics might work, yeah. which is an amazing thing. And also the need not to be an expert. So sometimes if you think, you know, you're talking in a scientific setting, then you're a scientist and that's, you know, a way of viewing the world. And I think that's where art is 
particularly exciting in that Haroon is sort of saying, you know, can these frequencies stimulate a pineal function, a pineal gland, and allow you to access a higher conscious? He doesn't know. Like, but can... maybe one person might have it happen. That's the thing. It's exactly. like contingency is also a thing. And... Yeah, but also a point of not knowing. You know, afterwards, Haroon did an artist talk, and he was sort of saying, I don't know. I don't know if these things work. I don't know. And at the end of it, I was like, you know, you're the artist. I don't want you to know. <laughs> like, art is dead when it knows, you know? It should be speculative, it should be questioning, and that's where, you know, it is exciting because all these conversations come, can come into one discipline. And that's the thing, the word speculative, I'm like, I'm very happy that you bring that up because that is something that art sort of praxis are moving into a lot. It's just like, let's speculate, let's think about possible futures or possible ways to think because so far meaning, and at least within the systems of colonisation, it's like meaning and becomes so arbitrary, meaning becomes something tied to power. It's not something that we get to share and hold. So actually, like, why not then subvert that by fucking with meaning, by trying different systems and different intersections, because that's the only way you can subvert, like, arbitrary supremacy and power as well. Audience time again. Um, some questions? Oh, over here. Just wait for the microphone. Oh, here it comes. Thanks, Miriam. Feel free to introduce yourself again. It's always nice. Hi, my name is David Fideli. Um, just two questions for Stefan, which is sort of two ends of the, or different ends of the spectrum of the same thing. In your experience, have you... <laughs> sound. <laughs> have you um, experienced resistance or people that um, didn't um, either want your treatment or didn't have any effect on them and on the other hand, have you, are you able to share any experiences of um, extreme um, reactions to your treatment? So the first question, resistance to it. Yes, today I had resistance to it. So I've never had, like, there are two parts of your question. So the first one is resistance to the treatment and having it. The other one is um, 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 not having a response to it. The, the second is no, there's always a response. You cannot not respond to music. And that leads into the first question then, which is, um, I saw a patient today who I've seen before um, going through, I've seen her maybe four times, played music for her. She's, she's struggled, she's had existential fears, she's uh, uneasy in her bed, not doing very well. Um, and today she felt like adding music to that wasn't the thing and and I, I totally accept that like because that's not a rare thing like I, I have patients that go actually I don't know if I can cope they know what music can do sometimes like I don't know if I can deal with music right now I'm holding on with everything if you're gonna if you play any song right now that's that's gonna make me slide even more on the inside and I don't know if I can cope with my emotions or whatever it is because emotions are kind of just this beast inside of them that that is unpredictable and they want to have some sort of control maybe they have to need that feeling of control when it comes to their families or maybe it's for themselves to just feel like there's some kind of sane aspect still alive and playing one song I've seen it so one song can just poof, ten, 10 seconds can strip someone of what they thought they were and they'll sit there and just bawl their eyes out and it's beautiful if they can cope with it and it's scary if they can't 
And then there are musical ways that I then try to deal with it. If they don't, if you can see they're not very comfortable, then I will lighten the way I play. I'll speed up the song. I'll, I'll make it more chipper. Even if it's a sleepy Simon Garfunkel song, I'll try to make it ding and, ding, and, and, but not make it Pinocchio and not make it silly. Like, still in the severity of the situation. And or I would go, are you all right? Like, do you want me to continue? I guess that just adds into the, you know, that just comes back to that whole point that Fjorn and Annika were making about the, you know, you, you can only create the art and then, uh, and then oh. it opens up. You know, the difference is, though, whereas the paradigm for art, the, the whole point is, that's the whole point. Whereas for you, you've got to somehow combine that with being a therapist and somehow have some control. So at the end of the session, hopefully, the person's feeling better than they did at the start yeah. when you come in. Which is, which, like, better, but also allow them to be where they're at. Like, allow them to be with the emotions that they have and give them a space to communicate it or be together. Like, it's not always teary. It's, sometimes it's, it is bringing the family together and they get memories. But the two things that I wanted to add to that, like, one thing is the art. And, and there's a framework at the hospital as well that I experienced. Like, it's so funny to see people request a song. As they go through this journey, they request a song that they've sung and played all their lives. Like, I don't know. Uh, John Denver, uh, Annie's song. You fill up my senses. And they're like, oh, they've been singing around to it. They've danced on the porch to it. But when you play it there, it's in the new framework. And everything, the words taste differently. And I think, I think that spills into the, to this space. Like, you have this framework. We experience it through there. And whatever framework you're carrying with you is going to interpret whatever it is. And in my world... Songs that they request that they think are safe, all of a sudden are not safe. Like emotionally, it just reminds them of, and it will send them into a space that then that's new to them maybe. But often that's the therapy. That's, that's, it, it's not a bad thing in my world. I see it as, as long as I can cope with it and deal with that space. That was another question as well. Have we got positive experiences? You were talking about that trucker before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Have we got time for another question? Yeah, just, yeah. I'm looking over at the boss, yeah? Uh, is there any more questions? The moment I say we've got time, everyone goes... Oh, yeah, okay. Thank you. Uh, recently, we do have some empirical evidence on breathing and its effect on nervous system. Uh, is there something similar with music, uh, different sort of music has effect on nervous system or immune system? Who's going to have a go at this? That's a hard one. Yeah, it is a hard one. There's, um, I don't have that sort of medical, physiological yeah, background, so you go for it. There's plenty, and there's a growing... Because apparatus is getting better, the problem with music is that you, when you do research with music, you're dealing with a ton of variables. It's hard to separate. Like, there's the human interaction, there's the song. If it's live music, oh, my God, the variables are just... They will make you throw up because you can't control anything. Uh, but there are studies, because we're getting better and better at measuring things, we get better and better at capturing uh, sites like that. And yeah, we can actually start to document how the body responds to music, how the immune system... Like, the easier things to, to measure are kind of like hormonal responses and stuff. So we know that when you sing, endorphins will be released. Like oxytocins, if you really go for it. And, and if you sing in group, even more endorphins. And it will, be, it will have like... And your T-cells, there's an increase in T-cells and stuff like that when you do music. So uh, I, can't, I haven't done a lit review on it, so I can't give you like the overall scope of it. But there's a growing... 
body of evidence that shows that music actually has a healing and 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 uh, and um, a physical response. Like 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 I said, you cannot not respond to it. So now we're kind of just measuring what it is that's happening because that's really what you're saying. Like, can we say, can we prove it? And it's like, yeah, well the. The proof has until now been in your experience, but now you can kind of put it on paper and go 500 milligrams of endorphins and the kind of thing. <laughs> Went up. We might get there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One gram. Yeah. Um, <laughs> any other questions? I've got a, like a final question and I'm trying to... Oh, sorry, there's a question up there. I'm very sorry. Can I repeat the question so that just in case it doesn't come out? So the question was, um, if I got it right, um, is playing in a... Can you elaborate on whether playing in a group has a different experience? Have I got that right? So, yeah, so what's the difference between playing music by yourself or with a group in terms of its effect on health or broaden it out to the art and the politico-cultural? Um, I guess I would say in the sense that, like, we do... We are, in the context that we are in, we are in a very individuated culture and there is something that is quite, I guess... Um, it does connect in some way, like sound and relating to sound, because it is such a like an abstract language as well. It doesn't have a particular dis like prescriptive meaning. It is something that does have the potential to bind people because you come together over trying to interpret and imbue and value meaning, which is like the force of collectivizing just in general. So I kind of see it in that sense of like you find similarities and bonds through listening and hearing together, playing together. I don't know, as someone who does collaborate with other people, I do find that it helps you somehow connect and you connect over this like resonant thing that's happening. I can't quite explain it, but you do like you do connect and you understand each other in this very bizarre way that is outside of you. Um, so yeah, I think that it does have that ability, but I can't quite explain it beyond it sort of being like a social connectivity sort of thing. I, I, I agree. And I think that a lot, of, like, a lot of that is mystical in the sense that we can't, we can't explain what's going on. But the, the fact is that we've used music as a cultural thing for so long, whether it's in churches, as kirtans, where it's like everywhere music has been the combining element. And, and we have we have a way of responding to that very deeply, whether it's singing organized choirs or I did a workshop this, um, yesterday uh, with a group of 20 people where we did one, two, three, sing, and everyone were awkward. But at the end of it, it seemed like a holy space for some reason, like no one wanted to talk. We create overtones, if it's voice, we create overtones with our voice together, not like but we, just by you singing, ah, all of your voices blend together and it fills the room with a complexity of sound. I don't know why, I, we can't explain it at this point, why it is that singing in group does more to us than singing together. Or, like, but we can, do, we can document, like we can now measure the hormones that if you sing together, uh, if, if you're sung to, then you respond with endorphins as well, you get the same response. If you sing along, you get even more. If you sing along with more people, you get more. Maybe it's so. just something about resonance. I mean, resonance is itself in a term means yeah. something, you know, outside of music, it being a musical term, yeah. but it is used in both contexts for a reason because it does. It's something about a moment of binding. I mean, and in the weirdest sense, like I, I play sort of improvised electronic stuff in a duo with, trio with two other girls and we just mix samples together and sometimes the blend is just so amazing that we put our, our, we put everything down and look at each other and we're like, that weird sound, I don't even know why. Like, but the combination of your crap sample with my weird bloop and that thing just 
it's just, yeah, it, yeah, we understand it all of a sudden. It is just, it's quite weird like that. But there are shared sort of understandings around these signs in some way, and there is pleasure attached to it. Just, I think it's, it's time for us to end up, isn't it? I think it is. Because um, I thought you told me 7.15, and I keep touching my phone to keep an eye on the time. I need a beer. Um, I'm just wondering on where we should wind up, and I'm in two minds, that we either sing a note and we all affect our... Um, uh, except some of us got microphones, so it's not fair. Um, but I'm more thinking, you know, where would you like us to... I'm, I'm thinking of the sort of the future question. You know, how would you like, you know, each of you, because you come from different perspectives, where would you, how would you like to see us as people, our relationship to sound change? What's missing? It's such a primal thing. We have so few words to describe it compared to other forms of the experiences that we go through as humans. And so I know it's a mean question to throw on you out of the blue right at the end. But, where, you know, how would you like to see, you know, is there a place where you'd like to see us get to with our understanding of sound and its broadest concept and how we relate to it as people? Too mean? Feel free to tell me to piss nah, off. that's fine. <laughs> I think, like, what you might have been saying earlier, where it's, um, it's something that's siloed a lot. It's siloed a lot. It's, it's, it's partitioned into a disciplinary field, and I think that... I want to see more interdisciplinary ways of dealing with this sort of stuff in order to bring broader understanding to it because we have gone through that scientific method of abstracting something to understand it and interrogating it and breaking it apart like that. But now we need to think about things in their ways that they connect and to understand them that way too. I think that's something that I would like to see in the sort of way that sound and sound culture is um, being... And that it is a social thing as well. It is something that you can do in isolation, but ultimately being in isolation is a, also a very, um, you know, Western industrial concept. So it's not something that we're, like, very naturalised to. Stefan, you're next. That's a really hard question. <laughs> because there's so many layers to the answer to that. Like, like ideally... I would like to see a world where we, where we dare to embrace more paradigms than one, and that we actually uh, dare to accept that the world is so complex that we need to have, we need to embrace more, more, more. Complexity. Complexity, yes. Like at the hospital is a very good example of that. Like I would love to see us on par with doctors and not just music therapists and not just like, why not open the, like we're dealing with disease, we're dealing with a lot of complexity on why that disease occurred, how we can solve that disease. We know that, the, we know the standard treatments, they work on some people, they don't work on other people. They, they have side effects on most people, the quality of life. So if there's a way to kind of combine everything in a way that allows people to remain in a quality of life while going through Maybe also raising the awareness in general. Maybe getting literacy on, on death, getting literacy on understanding that maybe there's a pur like purpose to being sick. I don't know, but opening the doors and then and then spilling in like that was just in that setting. Then in general, like I think I would love to see culture like you kind of mentioned, like instead of being individualized all the time, kind of regaining so that music culture is not dominated by industry, but it is actually dominated by community instead. And that we do it because I think by doing is where we get the fruits of it. 
going expanding our brains at a, uh, and, and our perceptions in an, an exhibition like this and doing stuff that's kind of putting us on the edge of things and then engaging with the things that we know, the forms that we relate to, where we feel that the emotions that we, like where we get the endorphins going and then where we get to express ourselves because normally we're just these individuals that roam this world with, with, with isolated voices, but we can be so much more when we combine them. Annika? Well, I confess that I haven't really spent that much time thinking about the future of sound and what I might like for its future. Um, but I guess to kind of follow on from what Fionn's saying, maybe less distinction between what is sound and what is not sound, what is noise, what is music, what is art. Um, but maybe ultimately also in the way that we experience it, maybe, maybe we could become better listeners as well. I think there's so much in this exhibition, there's so many sounds, and I think people walk in and maybe they feel affronted or they feel something, but maybe they're not really thinking that critically about what they're listening to. And that is something that can relate to all forms of sound, whether it's conversation or incidental sound or music or, yeah. Just listen to other people. Just let's listen, let's listen better. That's a, that's a, a really beautiful sentiment to end on. <clears throat> and on that note, can I thank um, the three of you, Fionn, Stefan and Annika, and thank, of course, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art for uh, inviting us along tonight, and obviously for putting on the exhibition that was the springboard for this whole conversation. And, and in particular, to you know, extend that to the psychology of sound and giving us the opportunity to explore it from a slightly different perspective. And of course, finally, to thank you all for coming out tonight and, uh, and uh, taking part in this event. Thank you all. And... Thank you. Okay.